Well, this is the last week of this series, Shiloh Road, the series where we've been talking about these core values. And I want to tell you about a series we're going to start next week that's going to go, I think, three weeks. It was originally planned when I wrote this up last summer um, for a two-week series, but um, as I've gotten into it, I think I need three, and it might go longer. But the series is probably going to make a lot of us squirm. It's called um, Peace and Quiet, Developing the Discipline of Slowing Down in a world intent on speeding up. And if you're like me, that will make you squirm because we don't like to slow down and we don't like to be quiet. And so um, this series will kick off next week and for sure go three weeks. Um, but we'll just, we'll see how it goes when we get in there. So we finish up this series today um, on Shiloh Road. And we start with this question for you what is next? And, and I don't mean in the, the simple sense, well, I'm fixing to go eat at, you know, Outback or wherever you're going after we get done here this morning or even Bible class or starting work tomorrow. But in the bigger sense, what is next? The next phase of your life? Um, is it graduation? Uh, maybe you're, you're at the point of graduating from high school or college or even with an advanced degree. Maybe you're starting in a new school. Um, maybe a wedding uh, is in your future. Um, a baby is expected. Maybe it's another baby and you're going from two to three and you're realizing that your world is going to move into utter and total chaos. Um, maybe it's a new job. You're starting this transition and things are fixing to change. Maybe your kids are fixing to graduate and you're moving into this next phase of an empty nest. And you're going to walk in your house and just the opposite of the, the three and four kid household, you're going to walk in and it's going to be silent. And there's not going to be noise. Maybe it's retirement. You're fixing to slow down from working eight to five every day and walk into this new phase of life. And what's next in the big sense we don't think of very often because it kind of brings for us some anxiety. We don't like to think about it because we like where we are now. Even if where we are now is dysfunctional, we like it because we know it and we're comfortable within it. And the problem is when we start to move into what's next or even think about what's next, next brings a transition. There, there's something that's going to come next. And when we make that transition, there's going to be change. And when there's change, there's stress. Even if the change is good. This is what I discovered when I was starting out in youth ministry. I graduated from college. And within um, two years, three years of graduating from college, we had bought a house, and we had gotten married, and I had decided to start graduate school, and we were expecting our first child, and all the things, I could list them for you, were all really good things. But as I was talking to a counselor who worked at West Hill where I was previously, he said, yes, that's, I, I understand they're all good, but they're all major changes. And when you add them up, there's no wonder you're stressed. There's no wonder you're anxious because your normal is fixing to shift. 
What you're used to is going to change, and it's not going to look the same. And what brings the stress and what brings the anxiety is the not knowing what tomorrow will look like. Because like I said, even if where you are now is dysfunctional and doesn't work well, you still are comfortable because you know it and you live within it. See, the problem, though, is knowing what is next does not necessarily prepare you for what is next, right? How, how do you know if you're prepared for what is next? You, you don't really know until you get into it, right? And there's not this necessarily correlation between what is next, knowing what's next, and being prepared for it. I, I remember when we found out we were pregnant with Gracie, and we bought the baby books, and we talked to people, and we started to do as much as we can could to get ready for the birth of this child. And then we decide, here, or I guess we didn't decide, she decided, she decided, here I come. And so we go to the hospital, and we have the baby, and the first night in the hospital, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm going to be a good parent. I'm going to keep my kid with me all night. Because this was back in the day where you could ship him off to the little hospital nursery. And so, like, first night, you keep the baby with you because you want to be a good parent. Second night, you haven't had sleep, and you're like, no, take the child. <laughs> we have her for 18 more years. Go, go. But then that, that second or the third morning, I guess, our doctor comes in and says, you know what, everything looks really good. And Gracie's doing well. And then he said these words that I will never forget. You're free to go home. <laughs> and it, it was one of these like surreal out-of-body experiences for me at that moment. Because I remember him saying that. And there was this moment of like, so what do we do now? <laughs> I mean, because we're... We're, we're leaving here. We don't have your help. We're responsible, and we're afraid we're going to break her. <laughs> and you go home, and were you prepared? Probably not. As much as you did to try to get there. So we come to a part in the Gospel of John where Jesus is preparing his disciples to do ministry when he's no longer there. And, and then for the last three years, really, they have been walking side by side with Jesus, following everywhere that he went, doing everything that he did, ministering to the people, sharing life with him, sharing meals with him. And they come to this point where Jesus has this really, really difficult, I think, conversation with them. And it's funny because the context of it is so different than how we typically use the passage. Because we're going to talk about a little section in a minute that you hear a lot of times at funerals. That we say because this brings great comfort. In fact, when they subheaded the title, they called it Jesus Comforts His Disciples. Okay? So we're going to read Chapter 13, starting in verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Going on. A new command I give you. Love one another. 
as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Then he says this, by this, everyone will know. What will they know? They will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is Jesus' speech. And all of the disciples are listening. Hey, here's a new command. Pay attention. Here's a new teaching. Love one another. Okay? Now, Peter comes back. He asked him, Lord, where are you going? Where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Then Peter replies, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So Jesus says, here's this new command, which, you know, as a teacher, I would think I'm going to say, hey, here's a new command, and everyone's just going to be like, all right, let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about this new teaching. Peter says, Lord, where are you, let's not worry about the love stuff right now, where are you going? All right? Then he goes on to say this, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That way you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Then his disciples answer. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip replies, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus answered, don't you know me? even after I've been among you such a long time. Philip says, show us the Father. So, so we always talk about this in the sense of Jesus is comforting his disciples. But can you feel the angst in the disciples' voice? Why? For the past three years, Everything Jesus has done, his disciples have done. Everything. Peter even tried to walk on water. We went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. We, we've seen what Jesus is doing and everything. Jesus, hey, do you think this is a good idea? No, this is not a good idea. Okay, great. And now Jesus comes to him and says, hey, I'm leaving you. And it's like they hear nothing else. Because immediately, I think their minds jump to, okay, so what's next? What, what's next if this is what we've been doing and it's now going to look different? How in the world are we going to continue to do this? How are we going to follow you when you are not here? And Jesus goes on to tell him that I'm this vine and you have to remain in me. And he says, if you don't remain in me apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on to tell him that he's going to send his spirit 
And it was actually better that he goes away so that his spirit could come. And they finally get to the end of this, like chapter 16, 17, and the disciples are like, oh, okay, now we understand. Which you know they really don't. They don't get it. But there's this fear, I think, over the question of what is next. And maybe a bigger question, were the disciples prepared for what Jesus was leaving them to do? Because you think about this, Jesus had been preparing them. Like he doesn't come to this point of John and say, you know what, y'all sit down, I'm fixing to leave, let me go through a checklist real quick. Here's how you do ministry, here's how you teach people, here's how you heal people, here's how you pray over people, here's how, he doesn't go through this checklist. And I think his disciples would love that, to which Jesus would say, what were the last three years for? That, that was your checklist. You were right by my side, and you walked with me, and you saw me do this. Now I'm leaving it to you. This is plan A. I am going to entrust the kingdom of God and the church to these 12 ordinary men, and I'm going to walk with them and do ministry with them, and I'm going to equip them and train them and empower them, and I'm going to send them out, and I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be here any longer. And you're going to go and do this on your own. That's plan A. Plan B, there is no plan B. <clears throat> there is no plan B. It, it was always to be entrusted, equipped, and empowered to go and do ministry. And that was how the church would be built. That was what was going to change the world. Because Jesus had this succession plan. He, he had an idea of how things work. Jesus began with succession in mind. He, he knew when he came onto the earth that he was going to only be here for a little while. And in that little while, he had an opportunity to shape and change this world but it was going to have to be through other people because he wouldn't be around to see that it was done. He handpicks a few men, 12 of them, three of them that he was even closer with, Peter, James, and John. And he rarely did ministry alone. And he did ministry with the opportunity while those disciples were still around with him where they could debrief and they could talk about it. Jesus, we tried to cast out a demon in your name and we couldn't do it. And Jesus says, no, 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 that, that only comes out with prayer. Jesus, is that you? Tell me to come walk out on the water. And he goes and he starts to sink and Jesus says, why did you doubt? Jesus is doing ministry with other people with him because they're learning how to do ministry. This is preparing them for the time. But, but the problem is we have a ministry model that we've adopted in our churches for so, so long. We give someone a job, we give someone a task, and we say, go and do it. And they take that and they go and they work really hard at it and they focus on it and they do it and they do it and they do it and they do it and then they get tired. 
or they get older, or in some cases, heaven forbid, they pass away. And their job stops. And then someone else picks up the baton and starts all over. But, but have you ever thought about Jesus' ministry model? He, he's teaching these crowds, and they start crowding in around him, and he steps back into this fishing boat and pushes out a little bit from shore. And he finishes teaching them, and Peter and his friends are holding these fishing nets because they've been fishing all night long, and they've caught nothing. And he tells him to throw it into the water, and Peter says, well, We've been doing this all night. We hadn't caught anything because you said we'll do it. And they do, and they bring in such a large catch that their nets start to rip and their boat starts to sink. And Peter's hit with this moment of like, whoa, you, you are Lord. You are God. And they bring this whole catch to the shore in other boats. And then there's this moment where Jesus has been teaching these large crowds of people. And the disciples come and they say, hey, we need to send all these people home so they can go and figure out what they're going to get. They can go to the city and get something to eat. And Jesus comes to his disciples and says, hey, you give them something to eat. And they start looking around. They say, well, we only got five loaves of bread. <laughs> there's 5,000 people here. What are we going to do with all these people? And Jesus, it says, takes a bread and he breaks it. And he starts to pass it out among the crowds. And the disciples are there watching this, and I'm sure passing bread out, and they're starting to wonder, like, wait, wait, how, how do we still have bread left? With this many people, it should be gone. And then... Right before Jesus comes to this point where he comforts his disciples, it's just before Passover. And Jesus is with his disciples. And he takes off his robe, and he grabs a towel and a basin of water, and he bends down to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter says, No, you can't, you can't do that. And Peter says, Jesus says, No. You don't understand right now, but one day you will. He says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, just, I mean, my hands, my head, just my whole, give me a bath. He says, no, you're, you've already had a bath. You just need your feet washed. And Jesus kneels down, and he washes his disciples' feet. You see, here's, here's what's amazing about this ministry model. Could you imagine one day you're walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and it seems like Rome is winning the day, and you're starting to wonder, is this the church ever going to make it? And you see these guys out in this boat, and they're pulling in this huge catch of fish. And what comes to your mind? Hey, you guys remember, we're all in this fishing boat, and we hadn't caught anything, and Jesus tells us to throw our net into the water, 
or they're walking through the market and they're thinking, man, this, this is not going well. And they see a little kid selling a loaf of bread. You remember. You remember when Jesus broke that bread and we fed 5,000 people? Do you remember as we walk in to make sure that our hands, our feet are ceremonially clean? You remember that time Jesus knelt down and served us and washed our feet? Jesus knew there was power in preparing people for ministry by doing it with them. Jesus knew there was incredible power in the pictures that would continue to come to their mind year after year as they were doing ministry without him there. Jesus knew something powerful was happening in that moment. So the question now is how do we begin to move more in Jesus' direction for a model of ministry rather than our traditional ministry models where we just do it ourselves until we get tired or are no longer here? How, how do we multiply ourselves? First, remember your meds. Your meds. Model is the M. Model, okay? Here's what I do, and I get to do it. So, so here's what I do. I'll get to that in just a second. Explain. Here's why I do it, and then demonstrate. Um, this is how I do it. So for a long time in youth ministry, one of the things I did really good at was inviting other students to teach with me. And so I would start out, and we would say, okay, I'm going to watch. You're going to watch me. I'm going to teach this week, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to talk about it. And I would give kids this list of questions, and they got to critique my teaching. So I'm talking to, to all these students, and they would get to go through and say, well, this was good, this was bad, this didn't make sense, and we would talk about it. And we'd do that two, three, four, five weeks. And I would say, okay, next, we're going to talk um, together. We're going to teach together. And so we would get up, and what I had an opportunity to do during that time was to explain, here's how I do this, here, or here's why I do this. I tell this story here, I try to make sure that their, their attention's here, and then I want them to shift, but I want to make sure this is connected to here. And we talk about all the nuts and bolts of how you prepare it, and how do you get your heart right, and how do you get ready to go deliver the talk, and how do you pray through that message before. And then the last few weeks it was, okay, great, now you're going to go and do it. And I was really good, and I've done it a little bit here with preaching. You know, Matt and I did that um, about a year ago. He came in and said, hey, I would like to, to teach. And so it was one class, I think, to start out. And he taught. And see, here's the thing. It's a lot easier. I'll just tell you, it's a lot easier for me to sit in my office and prepare it and just go do it myself. And, and it's funny. There, there's been several times when people have preached for me that I've been trying to help mentor, where people will come in and say, well, this is great, you get a week off. And I would say, well, <laughs> I've been working a lot harder on this message than I have the ones I've already done. Because it takes so much more effort and so much more work 
to prepare someone to do it. And I can promise you I'm much more nervous when they're up here preaching than when I am. I don't know why that is. But you model it, you explain it, you demonstrate it. But I want to do real quickly a little butt removal. Because I know when we talk about this, there, there are some buts that inevitably come up. First one is this, but I don't know enough. But I don't know enough. And, and trust me, it's easy for me. I'm not the best preacher in the world. I'm not the most intellectual person. I'm not the most, um, I can't even think of the word for the word that I want to say. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm not those things. And it's so easy for me to just say, well, eloquent. That was the word. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not. It's easy to say that. But Jesus intended us to pour into other people. Second one is this, but what will I do? Because that's the big thing, right? I mean, if you pass on your ministry, then what are you going to do? Well, it wasn't ever intended. And I think we, we get the, the mindset of like, okay, here's what I've been doing. Here, it's yours now. And it was never intended to be that. It was, come on, let's do this together. We're going to do this together. And there is always room for people in a church when we multiply ourselves. Because we give everyone else an opportunity to serve and to share and use their gifts. And I can promise you, if you are a leader, there are some things in your ministry that you hate to do that other people would love to do. In youth ministry, I hated doing the sign up for retreats and taking the money. But amazingly enough, I found an amazing lady in our church who loved it. I thought she was insane. But she did an incredible job at something I hated and was terrible at anyway. And I was able to say, here, you do this. And we did ministry together. And then the last but is this. But what if they mess up? But here's the thing. They will. You know how I learned that? I let seventh graders lead worship. Are they going to mess up? Absolutely. But as they mess up, they learn. And I'm right there with them to say, hey, here's how you can do it. And really, I would try to connect them with someone who actually could lead worship, not myself. See, for so long we've measured success as a church by your ability, your capacity to do your job well. But success is measured by whether or not you leave your responsibilities in capable hands. Because we don't want your ministry to stop when you do. When you run out, we don't want your ministry, we want your ministry to be a legacy. Something that continue on, continues on and grows and builds. But the problem is, we don't always just multiply the good. See, here's the deal. You multiply something, whether it's good or bad. As a parent, you can multiply really bad financial habits in your kids by the things you model for them. You can model 
bad relationships, and they carry over. I think it's really interesting. God says he's going to punish people for the third and fourth generation for the sins of their fathers. I don't think that's God sitting here saying, okay, I'm still punishing, I'm still punishing them. I think it's a lingering effect of the results of their sin. The bad relationships continue to build and carry over generation after generation after generation. You can multiply anxiety. Some of you, listen, some of you need to delete Facebook. We'll talk about this more in this next series. But some of you multiply anxiety with every political, religious, argument, debate, click, 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 click. And listen, listen. There is never anyone's heart that has ever been changed because they read a Facebook article. I would just say it is not helpful. It is not making the world a better place. And I would just simply ask, is this glorifying and honoring Jesus and pointing people to him or to my views and opinions? If you're going to be on social media, use it for that purpose, to exalt and glorify and honor Jesus, not to start debates and arguments because it's not helping things. See, here's the thing, though. You carry your stuff with you wherever you go and into every relationship. And the very first value we talked about in this series was pursue God together. This is why it's so important. It begins with you fixing you. Because wherever you go, you are there. Wherever you go, you are there. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And if we don't work on us first and work on our relationship with Christ and make sure that is centered and that is right and that we're worshiping, exalting, honoring him, then these relationships that we enter into that we're multiplying are not what they are supposed to be either. But here's what I do know. If you are older, the generations coming along behind you need you. They need a calm, consistent, faithful voice that is pointing them to Jesus more than ever before. Because now for these generations that are younger, there are more voices than ever before shouting at the top of their lungs, trying to grab their attention and gain them. So I want to show you real quick, here's the demographics of our church right now. You go to that first. Right now, this is what it looks like at Shiloh Road demographically. Our 600-something, 600-700 people, um, it looks about like that. So you can see 51 to 60, 61 to 70, 70 to 80, really big curve right there. Okay. And what's so easy to do in a church is to focus all of our energy, all of our attention right here, because that's where the most people are. But think for a second. 
What happens in 10 years? What happens in 10 years when everything shifts that way? When everything, there. <laughs> May the force be with you. Um, here's the thing. I left 81, or well, 71 to 80 and 81 to 90, the same level as they were. But let's be pretty honest about that. That, those two sections will start to decline as well, right? And the big question is, what happens with that 18 to 30? What does that bar look like 10 years from now? And then here's the really big question. 20 years from now. We have a huge responsibility because my kids matter. We have an incredible responsibility to hand off the church to the next generation and put it in really capable hands because we have equipped and empowered and sent them out to do ministry. That group right there that's missing from this chart, we have no idea how high that bar will go. What I will tell you right now in our churches in America of 18 to 20 or 18 to 30 year olds, it comprises about 12% of our churches across the nation. But as far as the population, it's about 22%. We're missing half of that generation. The question is, what happens to the generations that follow them? See, here's the thing. From the time a child is born, we have 936 weeks from the time they are born until they graduate high school and they're out of your house. 936 weeks that you have to make a difference, parents. 936 weeks that you have as a church to make a difference in their lives. 936 weeks. Right now, we have a five-year-old. And a quarter of that time is gone. And it doesn't seem like much Every week that goes by, we have less and less chance to equip and empower them. We also have a 13-year-old.
question for us as a church is what are we going to do with the weeks that we have left? Because that full jar, when that full jar is empty, those kids today would be 18, 19 years old. And here's what inevitably will happen. See, and our hope is at that point that we've prepared them not to be the church of tomorrow. See, that's a problem. We keep telling them they are the church of tomorrow, but they are the church of today. And until we stop telling them they're the church of tomorrow, they're going to continue to wait until tomorrow to lead. So I want to do something as we end. If you are able to walk and behave yourself, parents, you know, and you are fifth grade and down, would you come sit up here on the pews, like two, three years, three years old or so, through fifth grade? Just come sit up here for me for a second. I know there's a bunch in children's worship. Come on, Jackson. Come on, man. Listen. This is not the church of tomorrow. This is the church of today. And Christ, as he handed off ministry, he said, here, let's do it together. And you have a responsibility not to simply dodge the running through the hall, but to engage them. See, we have to, as a church, grow younger. What that does not mean is if you are older, you get to disengage. What it does mean is if you are older, we need you to engage like never before. We need you to pour your life into these kids. And I would have asked junior high and high school, but they're too cool to come sit up here. So we didn't go there. But we need you to engage with them. Invite them into ministry. Let them greet. Let them serve. Let them walk alongside you and see how you do ministry. And let them do it now before it's too late. Before the jar is empty. Before we run out of time. This generation matters. And we will not let them die because we are too lazy 
get involved in life or maybe too scared. We need you to engage like never before. Teach, greet, tell Ben you'll do something, anything. Go tell Becky you'll do something. But it's not just about having a children's ministry and a youth ministry. It's about having a church that loves and engages their young people like never before. We need you. They need you. Let's hand off the church to the next generation in better hands than it was handed off to us. Let's do ministry well. Let's multiply ourselves. Father, today, I pray that you would bless each and every one of these children and families that's represented here. Father, those in children's worship, those junior high and high school students who aren't up here, Father, all of those who aren't even here today, Father, we pray your blessing, not just over these kids, but Father, over this generation. Father, we pray that you would raise up a generation that points people back to Jesus, that loves you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, we pray that you would use this church to change the trajectory of the future generations. Father, we pray that you would do something powerful in this place through your people. And Father, we pray that you would change the world through them. Father, we have right here before us future doctors and lawyers and teachers and preachers, Father, who are going to go and do some amazing things, some here in Tyler, some throughout the world. But Father, I pray wherever they go, you will use them for the glory and honor of your name. And Father, that you will use our church change this world. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.